Good morning. Why don't uh, we begin uh, uh, not cum tempore, but sine uh, tempore. Uh, my name is Wolfgang Danzbeck-Ruber. I'm uh, the uh, director of the Liechtenstein Institute on Self-Determination. And uh, I have the great honor and pleasure to um, open this um, second uh, Princeton Colloquium um, on public and international affairs with uh, a magnificent panel which um, could not be more appropriate for the subject of the colloquium. This uh, year's uh, colloquium, which is organized by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs, is um, dealing with the dictum of uh, Princeton University. All of you know, of course, uh, Princeton in the service of all nations and Princeton in the nation service. Um, we deal um, specifically here with the uh, international connotation, namely in the service of all nations. Uh, and um, the, this year's colloquium uh, will uh, specifically focus on the role of non-governmental organizations, or NGOs as they are called, in global governance and uh, society. Let me uh, on this occasion uh, quickly uh, say a word about uh, the Liechtenstein Institute's activities uh, which you can uh, follow on the uh, our website. Uh, Liechtenstein Institute on Self-Determination is an integral part of the Woodrow Wilson School and has been actively involved in um, a major international project on state and security building in Afghanistan and the region. Uh, because of this, uh, I have the honor and the delight uh, to uh, welcome on this panel several of uh, the um, regular um, participants and members of uh, the LISD's um, uh, operations. And I would like to emphasize also that our last um, uh, series of major meetings um, on state and security building in Afghanistan have just been adopted as a United Nations Security Council document and General Assembly document a couple of uh, weeks ago, and this is on the website. Um, in view of the prevalence and uh, importance and um, increasingly critical relevance uh, of the situation in Iraq, we felt, however, that uh, we cannot deal with a, a panel um, discussing non-governmental organizations um, without considering um, the situation also in Iraq. Uh, and I hence um, have, uh, the, have agreed and have the pleasure to um, uh, offer to you the uh, following um, uh, situation. We have basically two parts in this opening panel. Uh, one of, the first one will uh, give you um, an overview uh, uh, by two uh, magnificent experts on the uh, non-governmental organization situation in Iraq. Um, and then the second part uh, will uh, bring to you uh, certain elements of um, experiences, challenges, and opportunities uh, of non-governmental organizations in Afghanistan. And that uh, should then also uh, offer us in the ensuing uh, discussion uh, time the opportunity to uh, not only shed light on the uh, situation in each of these countries, but also perhaps already to begin 
drawing uh, potential um, uh, lessons uh, from the experiences in Afghanistan uh, and the LISD. We are just on the way now to write up some of those experiences and with the hope that they could find um, um, opportunities to be adapted elsewhere. Um, and in order to um, do so um, and to have a fruitful uh, discussion, I have asked the panelists uh, to stick to maximum uh, 10 minutes. And uh, we will begin uh, with uh, offering the floor to Mr. Denis Dragovic, who is currently the um, International Rescues Committee's uh, uh, chief uh, and country director of Iraq. He has been in Iraq since June 2003, uh, and he has established the uh, operations in Najaf and Kabbalah yeah? there. Uh, and uh, it is amazing if you go through his um, uh, curriculum vitae, this, uh, if I still dare say, younger Australian seems to have had a love affair with any hotspot in the last couple of years. Uh, he was prior to um, um, Iraq, he was in East Timor, uh, and he ran IRC operations in southern Sudan, uh, and then went back to Australia in 2002, where he established the ASEAN-Australian Development Cooperation Program for U Australian AID. Uh, and uh, he is now in charge of a program, namely of the um, IRC um, operation, um, which uh, includes uh, several dozen international um, employees and more than 150 national staff uh, of Iraq is providing assistance in restoring rural access to potable water, waste collection in urban areas, rehabilitation and health clinics and training health staff and operating in child protection. I would also like to um, emphasize that uh, we are uh, delighted that Mr. Dragovic could join us, which was not at all certain because one of his staff got actually kidnapped uh, a couple of days, uh, weeks ago, and they only managed to um, um, and so, uh, the release of this person. And um, Dennis and others had hoped that perhaps this was also one of the reasons uh, that the person was released because he worked uh, for an independent NGO. So with all this, uh, we are delighted to have you here, and we are looking forward to your expertise. Thank you very much, uh, Wolfgang, and thank you to the LISD and, and Woodrow Wilson School for this opportunity. I want to discuss a very pertinent issue uh, for NGOs at the moment in Iraq, and that is humanitarian space. Let me get, begin by reading a quote from a newspaper article that appeared recently. The U.S. military has set aside land on its bases in Iraq for non-governmental organizations, which will help rebuild essential services such as sewerage, water, power, health, and education in the war-torn nation. One person quoted in this article said, it is not only safer, but I feel that the reconstruction must be a joint effort. I want to have a merger of NGOs and civil military affairs. Just let, let me repeat that. I, I want to have a merger of NGOs and civil military affairs. It seems to me that somewhere along the line that people don't have a clear understanding of the role and the unique nature of NGOs and not surprisingly so, considering what's going on in Iraq at the moment. On one side, we have US military personnel parading in, in, in certain times in civilian clothes, driving white 4x4s, and even driving civilian vehicles. We have uh, civilian aid workers uh, wearing Department of Defense IDs, surrounded by armed security guards. 
The media, meanwhile, refer to soldiers and armed security personnel killed in action as humanitarians, and NGOs themselves in some cases request and accept military escorts or contracts from the Department of Defence. It's very confusing to me to be able to distinguish between NGOs uh, and it's understandably even more confusing for Iraqis who haven't had an experience with the international humanitarian community and the unique independence of NGOs. There is a need for all segments of the international community to better define and more clearly identify the roles in Iraq. Without a clear distinction between civilian actors and belligerents and their proxies, the unique status and accompanying security blanket provided to international NGOs throughout the world will disappear, undermining over a century and a half of progress uh, in, in, in the work that in international organizations have done throughout hotspots throughout the world, fending for people who, during times of war, are least able to fend for themselves. So I will review and provide recommendations to three actors that can help widen the humanitarian space in Iraq, and those actors being the military, contractors, and NGOs. To begin with, the military and clearer identification. When I first arrived in Iraq in June last year, the military were driving military vehicles, the UN were in blue vehicles, and NGOs were in white vehicles. As the situ security situation deteriorated, uh, the US military and private contractors began driving in white 4x4s, which forced NGOs to paint their vehicles in a variety of rainbow colors from yellow, green, and silver. This, of course, didn't help the situation uh, as far as we were concerned, and, and uh, this subtle distinction wasn't enough to ensure our security. And most international organizations now drive Iraqi civilian vehicles Regrettably, the US military has also done likewise, and I've seen on numerous occasions uh, armed, clothed military personnel in civilian vehicles. The military and clearer definition of roles are needed. The military is obliged by international law to ensure that immediate basic health standards are met, especially during and immediately after the conflict. That is according to the Fourth Geneva Convention. Beyond this, history has proven that civilian bodies such as NGOs under the auspices of the United Nations are best placed to carry out further humanitarian aid and development. The most common argument heard against this basic separation of duties is that providing humanitarian aid through the military contributes to the Hearts and Minds campaign. Once communities see the civilian works that the military is doing, it is said, that, they will, that, that the communities will undertake every effort to provide security and protect them from foreign insurgents. This is a very, very narrow view of assessing the situation. Iraq as a whole, Iraqis as a whole, I'm sorry, have found, I have found support the invasion. But also as a whole, I have found that they are very disappointed by the subsequent lack of progress in key, key sectors. Ensuring that Iraqis are enjoying a better standard of living, regardless of who delivers the aid, should be the goal. And this will ensure stability, protection, and success for all actors in Iraq, including the military personnel. Experience has shown that civilian organizations are more capable, effective, and efficient in delivering aid. Uh, to quote an Oxfam report, uh, in 2001 in Afghanistan, the US military spent $40 million on air, food airdrops, uh, equivalent to $7.50 per kilo. By comparison, the average cost per kilo of food provided by the World Food Program is 20 cents. Similarly, I've seen military contracts in Iraq overvalued by fivefold, 
on the going market rate. I've seen projects undertaken without community involvement and money being thrown around reminiscent, I was told, by Iraqis of Saddam's regime who also used revenue from the oil to win the hearts and minds of his people. So my specific recommendations are that no US military personnel should use civilian vehicles. Secondly, that 4x4s used by the military should be painted in military colors. And third, that the military responds to humanitarian crises only in circumstances where civilian agencies are unable to. The second, second group of actors are civilian contractors. Civilian contractors should not appropriate certain common terms such as humanitarian or aid worker or non-governmental organization. I want to highlight one case of a major U.S. contractor who won the USAID contract for local governance. This contractor is a not-for-profit, which has in the press and by its staff in Iraq repeat, uh, repeatedly portrayed itself as a non-governmental organization and in some cases an, as an international organization. I wonder how can a contractor be non-governmental if it accepts a contract to do the bidding of a government? Non-governmental government contractor is an oxymoron that, that few seem to be picking up on. By using the term NGO or aid worker, you're taking upon yourself certain values that are associated with these terms, including independence of policy and direct control in the implementation of projects. This blatant effort to ride on the wave of protection that is usually afforded to genuine aid work is, in, is undermining the security of NGOs in Iraq and in any other uh, conflict situation in the future. Another phenomenon that has appeared in Iraq is the emergence of private security contractors. The second largest military contingent in Iraq is not the British, it is private security firms. They have an estimated 15,000 personnel, most of them armed, most of them providing security. They are tasked with what is traditionally the domain of the military. There's a firm called Blackwater that protects Paul Bremer. It's not the military. There's another firm that guards the Green Zone, home to the CPA, and another one, Custer Battles, guards the airport. These civilian contractors are de facto military forces with the only difference that they are better paid and that they wear civilian clothes. Specific recommendations are, contractors should cease portraying their staff and their work by terminology associated with non-governmental and international organizations. Secondly, private security firms tasked with direct support roles to the military should be forced to wear distinctive clothing identifying themselves as military. Lastly, the third group are NGOs. We are not without blame ourselves. To widen humanitarian space, all sides need to pull back. NGOs who use the military of the occupying power for protection, who house their operations in military bases, and contract or accept grants through the Department of Defense should review their stance vis-a-vis -vis the loss of independence. It is generally understood that funding from any belligerent government's military arm is not, acceptable, is not an acceptable source of funding for NGOs. Many organizations in Iraq have accepted funding directly from the Department of Defense or the CPA. Many NGOs have been forced into this situation by U.S. government policy in Iraq, which saw USAID funding directly through ORHA or then its successor CPA, which in both cases reported to the Secretary of Defense. Don't be fooled into thinking that these distinctions are only the realm of academics or bureaucrats. In a meeting uh, recently that I had with a staunch anti-US Ayatollah in Najaf, uh, who described Paul Bremer as the devil, 
uh, I somewhat hesitantly explained to him where our sources of funding were coming from, namely uh, in part U.S. citizens and the U.S. government through the State Department. After some discussion with the Ayatollah, he understood our situation and he understood that uh, we nevertheless maintained independence uh, and he has since become a staunch supporter of the International Rescue Committee, a US and New York based NGO. Recommendations for NGOs are NGOs should not report to or through the Department of Defense of any belligerent power. NGOs should remain a, a clear independent and distinctiveness from the occupying power in all operational aspects. Not all groups in Iraq are aware of the finer points that distinguish NGOs from other bodies operating in the field, but every effort should be made to maintain these standards and to ensure that the concept and understanding may take root in Iraq as these groups see the difference between NGOs and other bodies with their own eyes. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dennis, for your insights. I would like now to uh, welcome specifically nominated ambassadress Madame Rendra Himfranke, who has been chosen by the Iraqi Governing Council to be Iraq's representative to the United States and based in Washington, D.C. Mrs. Franke has been, uh, is in the, a native Iraqian and has been one of the key figures of uh, Iraq's um, diaspora here in the United States. She was the founder of the Iraq Foundation and was its uh, executive director from 1991 on, and has today this foundation involved in three major projects uh, in Iraq uh, with a combined worth of $1.6 million. Um, Mrs. Franke has uh, had uh, various activities, not only in the United States, uh, but in Europe, in Asia, in the Middle East, on behalf of the foundation and on behalf of Iraqi people. She obviously also testified at the House and the Congress, and she has done extensive publication in this area. Um, I would like to emphasize especially that her latest uh, co-authored book uh, was a book on the Arab uh, Shia, the Forgotten Muslims, which was published by St. Martin's Press in 2002. And um, on her behalf, I can proudly um, uh, emphasize also that this book has received excellent uh, reviews um, recently, actually, by St. Bernardine's College in Oxford, as I just found out yesterday. And of course, you were educated in another British uh, university, namely Cambridge University, and Sorbonne, and I would like to really emphasize that we are absolutely delighted that you could come, especially in view of uh, impending visits of several members of the Governing Council today and tomorrow to Washington, and you nevertheless came to the most important educative institution uh, on the East Coast of Princeton. Thank you very much. I returned to Iraq in uh, May 2003 after an absence of 25 years, and I spent most of the period from early May until the end of November 2003 in Iraq. Uh, at the time, I was still the executive director of the Iraq Foundation, and I went to Iraq in May in order to establish uh, the office of the Iraq Foundation in Baghdad, eventually hope, we hoped in uh, different cities in Iraq. And um, the thrust of our work, although we had other projects in Iraq that we were going to start on, but my, um, 
my mission really was to work on civil society issues, to work on uh, civic education, democratization, and to work with Iraqi non-governmental organizations. Um, I'm pleased to say that the Iraq Foundation is doing that kind of work now in Iraq, although uh, I am not there to enjoy it. Um, I want to confirm uh, some of the things that Dennis uh, said, although uh, he is very vehement in the, uh, in the split and the demarcation he wants to make between uh, those NGOs or uh, sometimes they're called PVOs, private voluntary, voluntary organizations, who are working with the U.S. and those who are not. And really, it represents two different cultures, in my view. Um, you have those uh, uh, NGOs or PVOs who have contracts with usually USAID, by the way. Uh, you mentioned uh, the military, but my experience is that most of them um, have contracts with the United States um, USAID, and they report to USAID. Now, in Baghdad, this is a very complex structure. USAID is housed with the Coalition Provision Authority, and there is a certain blurring of the lines. But in the eyes of those contractors to USAID, they're not really <clears throat> reporting to the Department of Defense. They're reporting to USAID. Okay. Would you agree with that? In their eyes. Yeah, in their eyes. Um, and and it, I think it makes a distinction for them. Nevertheless, um, be, as contractors, Dennis was quite right in saying that they implement instructions given to them by USAID, and they are responsible for giving deliverables. They have protection from USAID if they need it or from the CPA. Some of them have tried to break away and live on their own and have their own independent domain. Uh, sometimes the security situation does not allow this, and therefore they fall back uh, to greater dependence on the CPA as a whole. They do work with what is called the civil affairs component of the Department of Defense, but at the same time, this is... Uh, uh, not all of them do, only some of them who are concerned with working through communities and so on. Um, the other side of the, uh, of the scene are those NGOs who have uh, agreed or who have decided to completely, uh, in a sense, ignore the CPA, work independently of the CPA, uh, have no contracts with USEID, although they may have grants from the Department of State uh, but on the whole, most of those NGOs tend to be the European NGOs who um, uh, oppose the war, who are grassroots driven, and who work not on the basis of contracts, but on the basis of grants. And the difference here is that if, you are, uh, if you're working with a grant, you define your own mission, you define your own project, you define your own program and deliverables. Those who give you a grant uh, will look at what you want to do and say, yes, this is something that we can fund, but they do not dictate to you what you should be doing. So, and on the whole, those uh, smaller, I shouldn't say smaller, but certainly the more independent um, NGOs are uh, more integrated into society than the larger NGOs or PVOs who are working on contracts. Uh, I have met with a number of European, including Italian, British, and French NGOs who live in very modest houses, 
they live with the Iraqis, they uh, move around with, with their Iraqi employees, and they have a much closer <clears throat> penetration into Iraqi society in a way that the larger NGOs have not achieved. So this is, I, I would not um, agree with Dennis that the value system is uh, that different. It's different ways of delivering assistance, diff different ways of achieving certain goals. Um, I'm not sure that I would agree that there, are, there is this chasm in, in values, except perhaps in the way that they perceive the United States and in the way that they perceive the uh, uh, intervention, the military intervention in uh, 2003. Um, my concern was with Iraqi NGOs and uh, the, one of the benefits, one of the dividends of liberation was the enormous mushrooming and the creation and the proliferation of Iraqi NGOs throughout the country. We estimate that there may be as many as a, as a thousand NGOs today in Iraq. Now, uh, I should qualify this and say that we cannot think of them in, in sort of Western terms. These are not organizations with established rules. They're not institutionalized. Many of them are groups of people who coalesce around certain interests, but they really are uh, still very embryonic, and very few of them have acquired uh, a kind of strength and sustainability that one thinks uh, associates with the NGOs. One of the uh, uh, problems that we have had in Iraq is that, you see, I come from a background where, where I regard civil society and um, civil society institutions as a full 50% of the equation of democracy, the other 50% being government. If you don't have the civil society institutions and a strong vocal civil society, then you really don't have a, uh, a democracy. When the CPA came to Iraq, they uh, completely neglected this 50% of the equation. In my view, they focused to such a great extent on uh, infrastructure development, infrastructure repair, and uh, uh, setting up ministries and so on, all the sort of top-down systems, that they really lost sight of the need to also create institutions from the bottom up. Uh, they had some rather uh, feeble and faint-hearted programs to help uh, to do civic education, to help NGOs, but uh, the programs were, they certainly had not achieved anything that I think is of value. As a consequence, the NGOs that do exist in Iraq today are, uh, have had no organizational training, they have had no uh, developmental training, they have had no content training, in other words, training in the specific issues that they wish to address. They have no training in advocacy, and they have no funding. The funding, of situ the, uh, funding situation vis-a-vis -vis Iraqi NGOs uh, has been absolutely appalling because although USAID allegedly had set aside some funds to give to local NGOs, but through the bureaucracy and through the top-heavy administration of these grants, in the end, very little actually percolates down to the NGOs themselves. Uh, there are now renewed efforts. I think, as with so many other things, uh, 
that are going on in Iraq. We are in a sort of a play and catch up or damage control situation, and there are renewed efforts now to help Iraqi NGOs. Um, but I'm not saying it's too late. I just say that we have wasted a great deal of time because I think the Iraqi NGOs would have been an important step forward uh, in rebuilding Iraq, not only uh, physically, but much more in uh, social and political terms. Thank you. As I indicated before, let us move now from the uh, uh, experiences uh, in uh, Iraq, in the contemporary challenges, to the uh, um, more, unfortunately, already deeper experiences which uh, non-governmental organizations have in their um, uh, operations and with regard to their challenges and the difficulties to uh, implement uh, their intentions and objectives in Afghanistan. And uh, for this, I'm delighted to um, present to you um, uh, three uh, experts. Uh, first, uh, Professor William Marley, and then um, Dr. Andrew Wilder, and uh, finally then uh, Mrs. Barbara Stapleton. Um, uh, Professor Marley is currently the Foundation Director of the uh, Asian Pacific College of Diplomacy uh, at the Austrian, uh, National, Australian National University in uh, Canberra. Uh, and uh, before that, he has uh, taught at uh, several colleges in uh, Australia, especially also in the Australian Defense Force Academy. But I would also like to emphasize that uh, Dr. Mali was a visiting professor at the Russian Diplomatic Academy in Moscow, uh, and amongst his other um, um, teaching and research facilities this was uh, stationed in Oxford University. Um, he uh, has uh, published a major book, namely The Afghan Wars, uh, which has been um, reprinted uh, uh, several times. And then uh, he also has um, uh, just recently uh, edited the uh, volume Fundamentalism Reborn, Afghanistan and the Taliban, uh, which was published now by NYU uh, Press, New York University Press, uh, both in 98 and in 2001. Um, we are delighted uh, to have uh, Professor Mali talk to us about uh, various conceptual uh, uh, aspects uh, of um, non-governmental organizations and also their respective uh, experiences in the early part of Afghanistan. Bill, thank you very much. Okay. Uh, I find that my location within this panel is, is a propitious one because a number of the themes that have already been raised by uh, Dennis and by Ambassador Franca resonate with issues which I think are particularly important in the Afghan context. And I want to start by talking about the diversity of NGOs and the complexity of the realm which they inhabit and then move on to talk about some of the specific challenges that confront NGOs in Afghanistan, which I gather from the earlier presentations are also uh, serious issues uh, for people working with NGOs and working with the uh, CPA in Iraq as well. Um, NGOs inhabit uh, a realm which could broadly be defined as civil society, but that itself, insofar as it encompasses agencies with some autonomy from the command structures of the state is a complex uh, realm with many different actors within it. And in a way, I think the expression private voluntary organisation in some ways more accurately 
identifies what it is that is distinctive about what we call NGOs, because in a literal sense, the, the expression non-governmental organisation could easily take into uh, its ambit corporations and uh, bodies which are important actors in civil society without necessarily engaging directly with the state. When one looks at private voluntary organisations, however, one is immediately struck by the diversity within that category as well, that non-governmental organisations of this type can be indigenous to a particular state, they can be foreign agencies which are operating within the state's boundaries with someone's permission, or they can be transnational organisations which uh, carry out humanitarian uh, activities in a range of different states so that what goes on in one may actually impact upon the way in which an agency is working in another, not least because of the scarcity of resources which need to be apportioned in such a way as optimises the performance of the agency as a whole. Non-governmental organisations of this sort also engage in very diverse activities. They can be involved in the provision of emergency relief, they can be concerned with development issues uh, and conceive their responsibilities as being much longer term than simply emergency relief activities would imply, or they can be involved in advocacy as well. They also differ very greatly in their structure, in their funding, in their constituency, in their ethos. They range from bodies that could almost be seen as quasi-governmental, such as the International Committee of the Red Cross, which, like its brethren in the Red Cross movement, sees states, parties to the Geneva Conventions of 1949 participating in the governance of the organisation, down to tiny local organisations with no budget, no constituency that can be identified, what some people have called briefcase case NGOs, one man with a briefcase seeking funding for particular proposals. Uh, if we're talking about a realm as mixed as this, then it's likely that the kinds of challenges which uh, non-governmental organisations will have to meet will also be diverse. And I think the Afghanistan situation shows just how much this is the case. And there are three particular uh, challenges, very potent at the present, uh, which I'd like to highlight and which uh, my colleagues uh, can then flesh out in greater detail on the basis of their um, remarkable experience in working with non-governmental organisations in Afghanistan. The first is the issue of relationship to the state. And of course the Afghan state to a significant extent collapsed in the 1970s at the end of the, the, the decade when it lost its indigenous taxing capacity. To a degree it was kept alive by a flow of resources from the Soviet Union, both uh, uh, physical and material until the end of 1991, but when that uh, flow of resources cut off, the communist regime collapsed within four months. Uh, and a great deal of NGO activity was carried out in areas physically beyond the control of the Kabul regime, and therefore in a substantially state-free environment. And this became part of the climate of opinion, which was adopted by many NGO workers meaning that when the agenda of political change in Afghanistan after uh, late 2001 shifted to one of reconstituting the instrumentalities of the state, working out how non-governmental organisations would fit into this new situation was a serious challenge. Um, what kinds of responsibilities should non-governmental organisations discharge vis-à-vis -vis a new state, particularly when the capacities of that new state were still extremely limited? 
when new bureaucratic agencies were rapidly uh, falling victim to nepotism and corruption of the sort that was all too familiar to people who knew the old Afghan state in the 1960s and the 1970s. Uh, the question of to what degree coordination of non-governmental organisation activity by the re-emerging institutions of the state would be appropriate became a very serious one, particularly as certain energetic ministers in Afghanistan began to develop um, quite elaborate plans about the way in which the reconstitution of the state should proceed. Uh, beyond this was the challenge of to what extent non-governmental organisations should respond to the state when in much of the country it was clear that the, the new state was not in a position to guarantee the <coughs> basic kind of security uh, upon which the easy conduct of NGO activities would depend. And so in a sense uh, the challenge of building a reciprocal relationship between NGOs and the state loomed when it didn't appear that the state could deliver a basic side of a reciprocal bargain, namely providing the security uh, on which NGO activities would be based. Uh, a second challenge related to the way in which non-governmental organisations should respond to the military as a force within Afghanistan. And here uh, there are a number of different elements to take into account. Most importantly, the coalition forces uh, and the uh, International Security Assistance Force and uh, provincial reconstruction teams established under the ambit of those two agencies, but also for the future, the Afghan National Army, which is being redeveloped as part of a process of state building. Uh, should non-governmental organisations pursue involvement with the military or cooperate with the military? Now, here the climate is such an unusual one that it is difficult to come up with any uh, broad statement of principle that will necessarily um, solve all the problems that can arise. In certain circumstances one finds NGO workers who are deeply uneasy about any risk of being identified with the military because their staff can be targeted as a result. On the other hand there are um, individuals one encounters who believe that working cooperatively with provincial reconstruction teams under military auspices uh, is one device by which assistance can actually be uh, developed uh, for uh, indigent populations. Uh, and there is actually no magic solution to this challenge. It's rather one that needs to be negotiated through a process of reflection, uh, contemplation and politics on the ground. Uh, and uh, again, that's something which cuts against the ethos of some non-governmental organisations for whom politics is a realm separate from the humanitarian sphere uh, in which it is inappropriate that humanitarian agencies be involved. Now I think in a way uh, this is perhaps too purist uh, an approach to function readily in a real world in which everything has political connotations including the activities in particular areas of a country of non-governmental organisations. Let me conclude by pointing to a third challenge which I think is a very potent one and that is the challenge of working out the lines of accountability for non-governmental organisations functioning in states which are going through complex political transitions. To what constituencies should NGOs be accountable? The difficulty is that there are a number of plausible candidates which may put forward radically different kinds of demands upon non-governmental organisations in the field. One particular candidate is the donors that many non-governmental organisations uh, have vigorous donor bases uh, 
with, uh, whose, uh, whose uh, components have very clear ideas of what NGOs should and should not be doing, and in a sense these uh, donors control the purse strings. What adds complexity to this in the Afghan context is that many non-governmental organisations find increasingly that the key donors on which they're drawing for support are governments with political agendas, uh, which can then percolate down into the activities of non-governmental organisations in a way that other donors may not like. So the community of donors itself is not a united realm, but contains within it uh, a diversity of viewpoints. A second kind of constituency to which NGOs might be held accountable would be the host states, the states within which they're actually working, which brings us back to the uh, issue of the relationship between NGOs and emerging state instrumentalities. But a third constituency that is sometimes overlooked is the constituency of beneficiaries. And many NGOs appropriately see a key element of their activity as being to work cooperatively with the community of beneficiaries on the ground so that capacity building can be a key element of the activities in which they engage, even if uh, the, the prime stated objective is uh, a more concrete delivery of a particular service to a particular group. Uh, and very often it is with the constituency of beneficiaries that aid workers on the ground feel by far the greatest level of identification. Uh, since it's a face-to-face -face relationship um, that is vastly more intimate than relationships either with donors or with the instrumentalities of the state. Now again, there's no magic solution to how one resolves these tensions, but I think it is incredibly important that we be alert to the diversity of pressures which NGOs face in a country like Afghanistan so that we don't have simple as opposed to complex conceptions of the negotiating process by which they need to locate themselves in such a difficult terrain. Thank you. Thanks very much. Speaking about uh, being alert to the challenges uh, uh, of, um, uh, for non-governmental organizations in a specific uh, crisis situation, uh, it's a delight for me to introduce to you uh, Dr. Andrew Wilder, uh, who has just arrived from Kabul. Um, Andrew is the director of the Afghan Research and Evaluation Unit, the only um, independent policy evaluation and research unit in Kabul. Uh, and uh, this unit has been established by him uh, in 2002. Prior to this, uh, uh, Andrew Wilder was director of this uh, SAFE the children's uh, in Pakistan and Afghanistan field offices for six years, and he also had worked with the um, um, IRC uh, offices uh, and the Mercy Corps in Afghanistan, Baluchistan, and Pakistan. Uh, Dr. Wilder is the author of The Pakistani Voter, uh, a book published by Oxford University Press, and his uh, uh, unit has just published a guide to government in Afghanistan, which I can tell you from personal experience has been uh, one of the key um, uh, um, books uh, if you deal with uh, offices in Kabul. Uh, and he has also several uh, book chapters and uh, journal articles. I also would like to say, however, that Dr. Wilder has made himself a name as being one of the most independent-minded and critical um, um, commentators <laughs> of the actual situation in Afghanistan. And so I am hence uh, uh, delighted that he could join us on this panel. Please. Uh, thank you, Wolfgang, and thank you, Princeton, for inviting me to 
uh, speak. <clears throat> I think it's a very timely uh, topic that's been chosen for this colloquium, um, as I think NGOs are increasingly finding themselves under attack, both literally from a security perspective, but also in terms of their role in tasks like nation building in countries like Afghanistan and as well as in Iraq. Uh, I just heard that at the Afghanistan Development Forum meeting, which was held over the last three days in Kabul, um, in his opening remarks, the Minister of Planning, um, under which NGOs have to register who are working in Afghanistan, basically equated NGOs with warlords and basically told them it's time to pack your bags and leave. Um, that is the attitude of many within the government, but also uh, increasingly among some donors, a, a remarkable uh, turn of attitudes towards the role of NGOs in Afghanistan. Um, over the last 20 years, in the 80s and 90s, um, NGOs are virtually the only mechanism to provide um, humanitarian and development assistance to the majority of the population in Afghanistan. And in the 1990s in particular, when Afghanistan fell off the agenda, political agendas after the Cold War, um, and before it fell back onto the agenda after 9-11, uh, NGOs uh, played a major role in trying to keep Afghanistan on the agenda, providing assistance during those critical times. Um, but that attitude has really changed. And I think I wanted to um, uh, talk a bit about the history of NGO involvement in Afghanistan and build on a bit of what Bill's also mentioned, and I think Barbara can then flesh out more of the details. But um, I think Afghanistan provides an interesting example um, because for I mean, 20 years, NGOs have been working to provide humanitarian and development assistance for 25 years. Um, but for most of the 20, for in the first, uh, since 1980 till about 19, end of 1991, the role of NGOs, as Bill mentioned, was basically to work um, outside the remit of the state. But and indeed, the role at times was to delegitimize uh, state institutions. Um, this was particularly true um, in the, I'll, I'll go through four phases, um, uh, but then after 9-11, there's a dramatic turnaround and all of a sudden, after 20 years, the role of NGOs was not, it was no longer to delegitimize the state, but all of a sudden this task was primarily one to help legitimize the state. But the four phases I'd like to talk briefly about is 1980 to 1992. Um, following the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in December 1979, soon thereafter, and actually even just before, you started having large influxes of refugees into uh, Pakistan. Um, several NGOs, uh, IRC being one of them, 1980 opened up offices in Peshawar to provide assistance to the refugees who were arriving. Um, in the mid-1980s, the U.S. government policy changed to dramatically increase the provision of both covert military assistance but also uh, overt so-called humanitarian assistance, which led to the influx of several of the major American NGOs as well as many other European NGOs as funding levels increased dramatically for cross-border aid programs within Afghanistan. Um, I was the beneficiary of that influx of funding. I found myself after uh, on a flight from Lahore to Islamabad sitting next to the president of the newly founded organization called Mercy Corps. And by the end of the flight, um, out of desperation, he had offered me a job to go open the Mercy Corps office in Quetta in Baluchistan to run some of their cross-border programs 
um, in southwestern Afghanistan. Um, but the cross-border aid program was highly politicized. Uh, many of the programs being run were explicitly designed to provide support to the various Mujahideen groups and Islamic groups operating in Afghanistan. Uh, for example, a major thrust of the funding was towards uh, funding paramedic and first aid courses for Mujahideen workers. Um, so I wanted to just uh, emphasize this because it's not like this is the first time today where we're being asked to do a political task. The NGOs have played a very and highly politicized uh, role in Afghanistan uh, since the early 1980s. The second phase I wanted to talk about was from 1992 to 1996, which I think I've, I've termed sort of the period of anarchy, where basically you could do whatever you wanted, um, as there wasn't really a government to support during that period. Um, after the Soviet withdrawal in uh, 89 and the ending of Soviet assistance in 91, uh, U.S. Uh, interest in Afghanistan also waned rather dramatically. Um, Funding levels were decreased dramatically to cross-border programs, and also the political interest disappeared. Interestingly, I think this is one of the periods of probably where the quality of NGO programming in Afghanistan improved tremendously. I think, one, as a lot of the political agendas were removed, NGOs were freer to do what they wanted to do and not just, being, just doing what they were being told to do by some of their major donors. Also, as funding levels decreased, it really forced many of the NGOs to really think through hard about their programs, to prioritize, and also for many of them to shift from short-term emergency funding uh, programs to some mid- to longer-term uh, development programs. The third phase, I think, started in 1996 when the Taliban took over Kabul um, until 2001. Again, uh, the agenda... Um, of the U.S. in particular and the Western donors was, you know, don't support the Taliban govern, government and in, in many ways do whatever you can to weaken and delegitimize them. There was a very explicit donor policy of no capacity building for government institutions uh, or the Taliban government institutions. Um, at the time, I was director of Save the Children, and uh, for example, we had large education programs, um, and Save the Children took a policy at the time that we will not provide support to government-run educational programs that uh, do not allow girls to participate. Um, and to whatever extent possible, education programs were then run independently of the state uh, so that we could actually keep girls uh, enrolled in some of those programs. Um, I think, um, again, I think during that time it became increasingly difficult to do quality programming due to many of the Taliban restrictions, but uh, many programs did, I think, continue to do a remarkable job providing services during that time. Um, then after 2009-11, as I mentioned before, the situation changed dramatically and the agenda very much became basically the role of NGOs is to support the government and to help legitimize the government. Um, and I personally think that the, we've sort of gone from one extreme a bit to the other extreme. Um, I think there's, a, there's an urgent need in a country like Afghanistan to help rebuild the state. I do think it's a top priority there, um, and, I, and I think there's a, a very important role for NGOs in that task. 
that said i think there's also a very important role to maintain an active voice for civil society organizations whatever that means it's a complex term but i think that there is a very important role for n g o s some to be working with the state some to be not working with state institutions and probably some to be doing a bit of both i think there is a question what actually do we mean by the state in afghanistan and the government which we're being asked to support for many the current government is a rather unsavory cast of characters in many ways with some notable exceptions but many of the perpetrators of war crimes warlords drug lords people who are responsible for much of the conflict of the last twenty years are sitting firmly in place in cabinet ministries within this government so i think it's a fair question for some n g o s to be questioning do we want to be playing a front line role in strengthening some of these ministries and some of these individuals i think i'm running out of time i just wanted to also end with just a few challenges which i do think are confronting n g o s in afghanistan and i think first and foremost this issue of the independence of n g o s is going to be a critical one especially as they're increasingly being asked to support large state programs increasingly as the u s is by far and above the largest single donor funding programs and has some very explicit political agendas which you can agree or disagree with but i think it's important for the u s in particular to recognize that n g o s shouldn't just be perceived as another arm of u s foreign policy in afghanistan but that in many ways their greatest strength will be to be an independent voice a voice that can actually challenge government at times and not just being asked to only support i think another big challenge i see for n g o s and the broader assistance community in general and this is a bit of a self-serving argument as i'm now heading a policy research institution but that we need to engage a lot more in knowledge generation in afghanistan and in countries that are in conflict or post-conflict situations in particular the nature of funding for humanitarian assistance is generally again short-term grants that are very output oriented for the twenty years from nineteen eighty to nineteen ninety two the vast bulk of donor funding was within one year time frames or less and it was to deliver services build a clinic here run a school there deliver wheat there provide assistance there no donor or very few donors were willing to invest in any kind of analytical work or empirical work to actually inform policies and programs but the consequence that i feel today we actually know very little about anything with certainty in afghanistan and yet policies are being made fast and furiously and there's a real need that if we want to get in the really involved in the complex and messy task of nation building we need to do a lot more homework than we've currently done to date i think if we're going to be successful and i've been told by wolfgang i've run out of time so thank you we'll get more time in the discussion. Thank you very much, Andrew. Let me now, uh, last but not least, certainly not least, introduce to you uh, Mrs. Barbara Stapleton, who is uh, currently the advocacy and policy coordinator for the agency, it's called ACBAR, the agency coordinating body for Afghan relief. Um, Barbara Stapleton is uh, the uh, voice uh, for uh, relief operations in uh, Kabul, has been in Kabul since January 2003, 
uh, has uh, prior to uh, her um, operation in Kabul uh, been um, the advocacy officer of the uh, British agencies in Afghanistan group, uh, BAAG, and uh, has developed prior to this sense uh, her own personal involvement in Kabul already um, quite uh, uh, extensively advocacy policy uh, for Afghanistan and that region. But uh, in general, she, in, during her um, non-governmental uh, career, she has actually been uh, stationed uh, and worked around uh, countries like Burma, Iraq, Iranian Kurdistan, Eritrea, Kashmir, and uh, other South Asian countries. Um, Barbara Stapleton uh, was uh, trained and educated at SOAS, uh, uh, in London, uh, and uh, many of, new, uh, of you know her and her voice, uh, critical voice, um, uh, through uh, several interviews in National Public Radio and BBC. And uh, we are delighted to have you here, by the way. Thank you very much for that kind introduction, and um, thank you for inviting me here today. Of course, there's advantages and disadvantages in being the last speaker, and so I hope you'll bear with me if there's any repetition, but the themes uh, as... Uh, Dr. Mayley, Professor Maley um, indicated are going to resonate throughout all our talks because there's so many similarities uh, due to different circumstances in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq. In Iraq and Afghanistan, NGOs have seen a we're all in this together approach which has been publicly and repeatedly stated by the coalition anxious to co-opt humanitarian action and relief into their hearts and minds policy. New benchmarks in the politicization of aid have been set, bringing Médecins Sans Frontières, for example, as well as others, to question whether indeed independent humanitarian aid is now possible in Afghanistan or Iraq. The lack of comprehension and even astonishment which marked the response of provincial reconstruction team commanders and their personnel when I addressed a PRT commanders conference in Bagram in November 2003 in an attempt to explain why NGOs rejected Colin Powell's assumption that NGOs are force multipliers um, was, was marked. Um, there is now, as um, Andrew and others have pointed out, a confusion of actors in Afghanistan, and this has led to problems of coordination. Um, the humanitarian space um, is no longer, as Andrew um, uh, pointed out, um, the sole preserve of international NGOs or national NGOs as it had been during the Mujahideen and Taliban periods. The organization I work for, Akbar, established in 1988, forms a prime example. Humanitarian space now includes the military, private security, private contractors, all involved in the provision of aid and development to Afghanistan. For Afghans before 9-11, expatriates were largely seen as members of the assistance community. This is no longer the case, resulting in a confusion of perceptions in the minds of, of ordinary Afghans and fears within the assistance community that the guiding principles of independence, neutrality and impartiality have been eroded with possibly adverse effects for future operational capacity in a highly uncertain political future. This has been the background to the ongoing debate within the assistance community regarding the expansion of civil military affairs in Afghanistan from the outset, uh, from the outset of the intervention. 
this has been exemplified by the PRT plan, Provincial Reconstruction Team Plan, launched in Kabul in November 2002 by the coalition. NGOs are not mandated to rebuild Afghanistan. The international community in the form of the United Nations is tasked with the coordination of the, assistant, of the international assistance effort to which the NGO community seeks uh, to contribute and play its part by supporting the Afghan interim authorities' national development plans. But the donor governments are, oh, sorry, engaged in funding a political project in Afghanistan. NGOs' concerns about neutrality and impartiality are not included in that agenda. But confidence in the sustainability of the political project now underway has dwindled amongst national and, in and international NGO staff alike. Two years on, little if any sign of an inclusive participatory approach that would create Afghan ownership of the political processes being conducted in their name can be detected. Consequently, increasing numbers of Afghans now question the neutrality and impartiality of the UN and some NGOs' misgivings regarding the erosion of core humanitarian principles appear less as an obsession with humanitarian niceties, some depicted them as, and more as a rearguard attempt to preserve what now appears to be the relative simplicities that obtained during the Cold War. The challenges and dilemmas confronting NGOs in Afghanistan today were examined in a seminar organized by Akbar in Kabul in March this year, entitled Adapt to Survive? Question mark, the relevance of core humanitarian values in Afghanistan today. The topicality of the subject was reflected in the unusually high turnout of over 60 national and international NGO representatives. Amongst many issues, the seminar sought to elucidate the relationship between contracting and development and asked whether developmental NGOs that evolved in Afghanistan under the very different circumstances that both Bill and Andrew touched on are able to make a transition to the current circumstances and retain their integrity. A keynote paper was provided by one of these Afghan-specific NGOs, Afghan Aid, which summarizes the dilemmas faced. And uh, I quote, um, Afghan aid's understanding of the current position of the Afghan government is that direct funding by donors, of, by donors of individual NGO projects is contrary to the strict rules of the Afghan Ministry of Finance regarding support to the, to the national development framework. In effect, this means that NGO funding will in future come from contracts for service provision, either directly from donors or through the Afghan government, but always within the context of national development programs. Other funding will begin to come on stream for, for activities such as research, advocacy, and civil society capacity building, but the mechanisms for this are not well defined. The implication for Afghan AIDS work is that they will be increasingly dependent on contract-type funding, such as the National Solidarity Programme, where government and donors see a comparative advantage for NGOs over the private sector. The contracts will be short-term and focused on physical outputs with limited opportunity for developing sustainable community organizations. The contracts will be, will be let by government ministries that are sectoral by nature and offer no prospect of support for integrated projects such as, they, such as those currently operated by Afghan aid. 
Donors' actions need to be viewed against a background of overall assistance provision to Afghanistan following the Bonn Agreement in December 2001. In comparison with other areas of the world requiring urgent assistance, a great deal of money has been pledged to Afghanistan, though translating that into hard cash has been another matter, and there is an overwhelming political imperative to spend that money before the elections now due in September. But international attempts to transform Afghanistan are hamstrung by insufficient time. <coughs> so instead of building the capacity of Afghans, be it at government, in, in government at the central, provincial or local levels, international consultants have been brought in uh, and consulting firms, often at vast expense, to write government policy and provide the temporary capacity to allow donors to continue to provide funds and claim progress in the reconstruction of the country. The development of the recent government document, Securing Afghanistan's Future, provides a telling case in point. Nominally a government document under the Ministry of Finance, it was written by myriad World Bank and IFI consultants and was not even available in Dari or Pashtu. This document laid out the government's vision for the future and informed both the Af Afghan government's stance at the recent Berlin Donors Conference and at the Afghan Development Forum that took place in Kabul this week. There was an interesting response to this official government document by two member agencies of Akbar, NOVID and Action Aid, in the form of a paper presenting the case for more and not less government in Afghanistan. While strongly supporting the government's arguments for greater levels of funding and longer-term commitment by the international community, the paper challenges the, the, documents, the government's documents underlying narratives and assumptions. The weight of historical evidence, Nogib and Action Aid argue, <coughs> in terms of state building, militates against the Afghan government's developmental approach. As Afghanistan is pushed from within and without, in a seemingly unstoppable trajectory towards the holding of elections in September before the country is fully prepared for them. It is worth reflecting on a section of this, of this NGO paper headed Communities, Participation and Democratic Process. And I quote, we turn lastly to the issue of community development and the concern to build relationships of trust between the government and citizen and the weight given to community action, involvement and ownership with respect to enhancing participation, effectiveness and efficiency. Underlying this focus is a set of ideas in regard to the nature of communities, the relationship between collective action, associational activity and processes of democracy that largely denies significance of power and how it is socially structured. Indeed, it is the absence of a strong agenda in relation to responding to the structural dimensions of social inequalities whether determined by gender and or access to land and other economic assets that is so striking in, in the government's document securing Afghanistan's future. Um, have I got any more time? Two minutes. Leading um, an attempt, just to um, wind up, an attempt to understand these inequities uh, informs the approach of developmental NGOs, many of whom have had decades of experience in Afghanistan. Indeed, leading reformers in the current interim government come from their ranks. The localized, in-depth knowledge these NGOs have built up over time is of great value to Afghanistan's future as well as its present. 
but current funding patterns may well change all that as the, as the authorial voice of NGOs diminishes and they choose or not to become implementers of other actors' visions. It would be regrettable if their field experience was lost too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Demonstrating the Woodrow Wilson School's um, interest uh, in uh, to uh, work uh, and go immediately into the uh, um, uh, agenda which serve for education training and in the uh, service of all nations. Uh, I would now finally, after this introductory panel, uh, turn over the floor to my dean. Uh, uh, no, I thought you wanted to say a couple of words quickly. You want the discussion first? I actually wanted to say, in addition to this, that uh, the, uh, this uh, Princeton Colloquia on Public and International Affairs are uh, uh, really a brainchild of uh, Dean Anne-Marie Slaughter, and I wanted to uh, applaud her uh, for the vision to try to use not only governmental and corporate interests, but also to uh, work in the non-governmental um, uh, area, which is a great um, um, uh, dimension of our students' and alums' interests. With this now, I would like to offer the floor to uh, discussion and um, would, however, also suggest uh, to the panelists um, if uh, you don't mind that we combine uh, one or two uh, questions in each case and then uh, sort of go back rather than to answer immediately. Please. Yes, please. Another of the panelists that uh, talked about the capacity of the NGOs to be Is there any related uh, question to this uh, level of capacity? Well, I would like to ask the panel in, in uh, um, uh, relationship uh, to this question um, whether how you would uh, address uh, the issue of uh, challenges um, deriving from um, cultural religious elements, uh, which uh, are especially uh, sometimes intriguing for um, Western um, uh, NGOs uh, in their operation, how that uh, could uh, um, interfere into possible um, capacity and activity of NGOs in the field. Yeah. Uh, well, I might just make a couple of comments to uh, trigger our discussion. Uh, I think there are certain capacities which are important but not core given the diversity of activities in which NGOs can engage. Uh, but two which seem to me to be absolutely central for any kind of NGO are diagnostic capacity uh, and uh, a capacity to run an organisation with a high level of uh, uh, integrity and transparency. Diagnosis is important because uh, the situations in which NGOs can be deployed vary greatly and a one-size-fits-all approach is likely to lead to disaster. So an analytical um, capability to examine the particularities of a specific situation and work out how uh, the uh, particular objectives of a given NGO can best uh, serve 
the interests of the beneficiaries under, in that particular situation is, is absolutely central. The other, uh, I think, almost needs no defence. If an organisation cannot be run effectively, then it will squander the resources contributed by uh, donors in good faith. It will disappoint the beneficiaries on the ground. But it, it's also important uh, because there's a lot of hostility to NGOs uh, in uh, various circles at present. There are particular uh, elements of the political spectrum that regard um, NGOs as unaccountable um, agents of, um, in my country, it suggested left-wing uh, um, destabilisation of what would otherwise be healthy but poor uh, countries. Uh, and the demand that agencies uh, justify uh, the way in which they spend funds either to the people who've contributed to them or to um, uh, a wider um, constituency on whose behalf they purport to be speaking, I think is uh, a legitimate demand and it's one that all NGOs need to be in a position to satisfy. Yes, please. I think as we were talking, um, we should keep clear a distinction in our minds between um, uh, sort of international NGOs who come into a country to deliver a specific service. And then local civil society organizations who may also be delivering a specific service, but also may be there to defend interests for advocacy, for protection of rights, and so on, of specific groups. So there is a diversity in what we, we are talking about here. And I think we should keep that in mind. If I think about Iraqi civil society organizations, NGOs, I am really thinking um, both of organizations that do deliver service and organizations that also protect and advocate and so on, uh, which is also a service, of course, but it's diff somewhat different from the way an, an organization comes from the outside to do it. Um, and in the training, for example, that we have done, the Iraq, the Iraq Foundation has delivered in Iraq, uh, we've distinguished between organizational capacity building, that is how to run your NGO efficiently, you have proper governance, proper documentation, proper um, um, financial management. The other element is content. You have to know what it is you're doing if you're going to be, and this goes back to the question of knowledge generation, by the way. So you have to have the, the tools and the materials with which to work. And I would say that another area at which we are, uh, speaking for ourselves, least able to deliver training and so on, and that brings up another big subject that we have not really articulated explicitly here, and that is sustainability. How do you sustain yourself? Is it through membership? Is it through grants? Is it through contracts? Um, and, and what is it? And part of sustainability is who are you accountable to? Is it your grantor or your contractor? Is it your constituency? So these are the three areas that we've sort of distinguished. 
But if I could just raise a red flag here and say that, by the way, a lot of the discussion that we're holding today has behind it the implicit big problem of funding. And, and we need to face that squarely. And, and I'd, I'd be very pleased to hear what other people have to say because everybody has to have funds to operate and the sources of funds is a, is a big, big issue. Uh, yes, on the question of capacity, um, there's been a continuing attrition uh, on the trained um, uh, staff of NGOs, uh, both national and international, um, from the pool of higher salaries provided by the UN embassies, private contractors, and then international NGOs, I think, would come after that. Um, the Afghan government has been the prime loser, of course, and it's had an effect on, on their capacity. Um, the lack of implementing capacity uh, because of this uh, continuing siphoning off, um, particularly in the case of, let's say, uh, trained engineers who are greatly in demand in Afghanistan, um, now affects um, even the, the biggest international uh, agencies such as CARES implementing uh, capacity. Um, in terms of um, transparency and accountability, uh, which is so important in terms of the perceptions of how uh, Afghans view NGOs, developments of code of conduct and um, NGO legislation, which we're still waiting to go onto the statute books, is, is of immense importance. But um, the problem of implementing capacity at all levels for all actors in Afghanistan is a major, major problem. Yeah. On, on the issue of capacity, I think there is something um, that we have to recognize is that the role of NGOs isn't actually, isn't necessarily simply to implement a project. Uh, the whole pro process of de developing NGOs in itself is valuable and is the aspect, the fundamental aspect that we so value in civil society. It's not necessarily the output that NGOs create uh, after uh, completing a project. It is how they come about to being uh, by having particular people or groups within a community come together and speak and join in, in one voice. Uh, so when, when people talk about uh, capacity of NGOs, it, is, it isn't the be-all and end-all. Uh, and, and following on then, what, what Barbara was uh, mentioning about in Afghanistan, uh, lack of trained engineers, uh, what's the most important aspect of, of uh, knowledge uh, and ability in an NGO staff member is not uh, whether they have a certificate in, in being a doctor or an engineer, it's whether they can work with the community, whether they can listen uh, to the needs of the community. Uh, by having trained engineers it, it, and, and, and suffering from a lack of them indicates to me that the NGOs are doing a lot of contractors' work, that they are rehabilitating large water treatment plants uh, and the like. Uh, what NGOs fundamentally should be driven by is representing the voice of the community. Uh, beyond that, they can uh, advocate for the need for an engineering project to be done if they cannot do it themselves. So the, 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 the technical capacity of the NGO isn't, to me, as important as the ability to work with the community. Mike. Um, well, I, I, in this case, I do have to introduce myself briefly. Um, I, I led uh, one of the main French NGOs in Afghanistan for Dr. Bernard Kushner throughout all the 1980s and then between stints of 
leading teams with the United Nations. I worked again for Bernard Kushner's teams in Afghanistan throughout the 1990s. What I find extremely striking about everything you've said might be summarized in a deliberately provocative phrase, which is that as soon as an NGO misperceives its role, as soon as it loses sight of the specific role to which it is called, it becomes perverse and acts in a perverse way. I'll try to explain this with absolutely explicit examples. The role of the NGO in the 1980s in Afghanistan, as you have all pointed out, was to delegitimize a state perceived as aggressive, imposed upon its population against its population's will. Therefore, all NGOs working in Afghanistan at that time, which were funded mainly by the United States, were used and accepted being used to delegitimize a particular state. This was a time when what was very fresh in all our minds was the way that, say, my organization, or basically Dr. Kushner's organization, had so recently broken away from the Red Cross. And you had the two major perceptions of what an NGO is supposed to be dramatized by the way the Red Cross was operating both in Kabul and among opponents to the Kabul regime, and organizations like my own, which ultimately stemmed from the Red Cross, had broken away from the Red Cross to work only amongst opponents to a particular regime, with each side claiming to represent a particular ideology which was made explicit. Now, we know that the Red Cross basically was founded in an era when it was assumed that all contestants in a particular battle, for example, shared the same ideological presuppositions. When Henri Dunant forms the Red Cross in the 1860s, it's on the supposition that Austrian, Italian, French soldiers and officers all obey the same general humanitarian laws, and henceforth absolute neutrality may be observed between combatants who basically share the same ultimate values. This carried the Red Cross through its policy of neutrality and speechlessness throughout World War I. Then we know that World War II showed up this attitude of the Red Cross as a perversion since the Red Cross would not denounce the concentration camps, even though it knew about them, it ended up with the possibility that the Red Cross, after all, was helping the Nazi regime pursue the concentration camps. This became a central moral issue. Yet the Red Cross only finally broke apart in 1969 when the same issue was raised again during the Biafra War and where the Red Cross told its people, you will not denounce publicly what you have seen as far as the atrocities committed by the Nigerian army are concerned. There, you had Médecins Sans Frontières created. There, you had the idea, we have another role besides just taking care of people and bringing assistance in war zones. We must denounce. This flowered in the 1980s. This provided the justification for what we were supposed to be doing, denying the legitimacy of the Kabul regime because we said we will cross the borders, we will defy governments because we believe that bearing witness is just as important as delivering medicine. And in this case, we were playing an active role which, however, became perverse as soon as the Soviets withdrew. As soon as the Soviets withdrew, the attitude taken by 
American-funded European NGOs not to work with the Kabul government appeared as though we were taking sides in what effectively became a civil war. Whatever one may say, and to conclude, the purpose of our NGOs was to maintain an international presence in Afghanistan, essentially to prevent, so far as was possible, acts of horror, acts of outrage perpetrated against a population. We were there as witnesses, and as witnesses, we could provide assistance. All of a sudden, this role ends now. This role has completely ended. What is it now? If the role is not specifically defined, it would seem to me that more important than maintaining an international presence of a certain kind in Afghan villages, now the most important priority is training Afghans permanently to undertake the tasks that are needed to reconstruct their society. That is the objective, and an NGO then must be secondary to that or supportive of that and of nothing else, really. Um, any other? Uh, yes, please. Uh, the United States currently is um, uh, more tolerant than sometimes in the past of a blending of secular and uh, faith-based uh, NGO work. I'm very curious in the specific case of Afghanistan and Iraq whether the perception of the strong role of American evangelical groups is com uh, complicating the work of the secular NGOs, complicating the work of the um, sort of the government NGO relationship. Um, uh, is there anything useful that can be said without taking the discussion too far off track? Thank you. Would you like to? to sure. Um, I, I have spent most of my time in Iraq in the holy cities of, of Najaf and Karbala, cities that uh, are very particular in their beliefs and very protective of, of their beliefs. And they, they have been uh, very uh, aware of efforts by some organizations who are faith-based uh, uh, from uh, distributing Bibles through to um, you know, spreading the word. Uh, of, of, of being seen as um, another crusade. And, and so there is a very, um, very visible and um, an important um, issue there that needs to be dealt with. And, and certainly in Iraq, uh, certainly in the Shia the South, it's, um, it's going to clash, it's going to come to a head sooner or later. We, we're a, 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 um, a we, we are not faith-based, the IRC, and, and this has helped us through with a lot of the Ayatollahs. Um, again, I'd like to look at the flip side of a, co a coin from what Dennis has just said. By the way, I agree with you. I think it's, it's not smart um, to be going around in Najaf Karabana distributing Bibles. However, um, the, the, the other side of all of this is that, and I'm sorry I didn't have time to talk about it, but when you look, about, look at the local, um, whatever you want to call what have we decided to call them, PVO, PVOs, CSOs, the local non-governmental organizations in Iraq, the ones that have been forming, what you see is at least one category of them are outgrowths of religious organizations. 
um, NGOs who say that they are independent and so on, but which are in fact um, um, funded, promoted, and draw all their um, staff from one religious institution or they are followers of one religious leader and usually tend to provide services for their own constituency, which is limited to that particular group. Now, um, th there's a little bit of a problem with that. It's not that they're not legitimate, fine. It's not a problem. And, and a lot of the time they do excellent work and they provide services that the government isn't providing. Um, we've seen a pattern of that, whether in Egypt, with uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, whether Hezbollah in Lebanon, whether Hamas in, on the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, the question for somebody like the Iraq Foundation, for example, or any other organization, is if when we are working with these faith-based Iraqi groups, um, should we distinguish between them and those who are not faith-based? There are, by the way, also ethnically-based uh, NGOs which draw their constituency and their leadership from a particular ethnic groups. It becomes um, a little bit of a dilemma for us. Thank you. Yes. Uh, there are, of course, different types of faith-based organizations and radically different approaches which they can pursue. Uh, there are some faith-based organizations. There was one very active one in Afghanistan from the mid-1960s which saw the realization of their Christian ethos as taking the form of service rather than uh, uh, proselytization. <coughs> when agencies go into a country such as Afghanistan or Iraq with proselytization as part of their agenda. I think they actually have a very important responsibility which is often overlooked, and that is the responsibility that they bear towards their locally engaged staff. International organisations working in these kind of countries almost always depend upon a substantial cohort of lo loyal, locally engaged employees to be able to carry out their activities, and they may put locally engaged staff in incredible peril if they engage in uh, uh, activities to propagate their particular religious views, uh, of which their locally engaged staff may be substantially unaware, but which the locally engaged staff may then be uh, um, deemed accountable uh, in the eyes of some ruthless authority. Now, we saw this actually in July 2001 uh, in Afghanistan under the Taliban, uh, when um, a number of people associated with uh, a Christian agency were arrested. So were their locally engaged staff, and the number of people who were around to agitate on behalf of the local staff uh, was uh, a lot smaller than the number of states that could be deployed to make representations in, on um, behalf of the internationals. Uh, I, I agree. I don't think it's a brilliant idea to engage in this kind of activity in very sensitive uh, religious contexts. Ambassador, 
interesting detail nature of the NGOs that are that are presently in Iraq in the multitude of them. And uh, Mr. Dagovich obviously painted, painted the stories of the present situation uh, of activities of NGOs and the necessity for instance to have different colors of cars for personnel of NGOs and other agencies. My, um, my question to you both is, how do you see the future? I mean the future of the, of the work of the NGOs in Iraq after July 1, and also after the, after the vote on the Constitution. Is there going to be is there going to be the collaboration that Mrs. Stapleton talked about? Is there going to be is there going to be some kind of a control by ministers of the activity of the NGOs? And can we look forward to some some uh, favorable activity of the NGOs? In, in, in a year from now, in two years from now, in Iraq. I'm going to ask this question and then shortly switch to your side of the podium, but I'm very struck in listening to all of you uh, by a, a paradox, which is in some ways Many of the tensions you describe are uh, the result of what many NGOs have long wanted, and maybe the inevitable result, in the sense that certainly, I think in Afghanistan, not in Iraq because of the politics in Iraq, but in many of the countries that NGOs have worked, doing the kind of work you describe, uh, they wanted nothing more than the world to pay more attention uh, to those countries. Right? They spent their time saying, you know, if there's an immediate crisis, everybody pays attention and then we forget. I mean, you know, here is the crisis, here is the, uh, here are the problems, focus on us. What happens when governments focus on you is that they send you in their own tools. The military, the development community, the State Department, uh, and of course the contractors. So if you look forward and we see the kind of world that many people like me write about, where we governments are as focused on human security issues as they are on state security issues, that they understand uh, that these kind of, that many countries in the world need attention not just when they have crises, uh, then it seems to me we are looking at a future where there must be, if not partnerships, at least non-hostile relationships uh, between the nonprofit sector and the government sector. And I'd like you to articulate a more positive vision of what that would look like rather than uh, it's sort of accepting the problems of today, but accepting that we have to get that one. Uh, I guess the, the answer to both those questions, uh, to, to begin with, in no way uh, am I denigrating or against uh, contractors. I used to work for one myself. Uh, and the military has done an admirable job uh, in Iraq for the, what they 
in my, my opinion, what they should be tasked to do. It, the questions and the problems arise when there is a mission creep by all three sides. And that's uh, regrettably occurred uh, in Iraq and, uh, and just as much by the NGOs as the military, as the contractors. So what, what will it look like after July 1st? Well, that really depends on, on what happens uh, on June 30th and, and how it progresses. But what NGOs need to do is they need to find a niche market within Iraq. At the moment, they're doing a lot of work that contractors should be doing. Um, there is one NGO who is re rehabilitating major water treatment plants. That is not the job of NGOs. That is the job of contractors. Uh, a niche market may include, for example, um, facilitating the return of, Iranian, of refugees in Iran. And, con and contractors will not do that, nor would they want to do that, and the military certainly won't be doing that. That is something that NGOs can do and have a particular area of expertise to do that. So that's the challenge for NGOs, is to develop strategic plans and start moving towards how they can identify uh, a niche market for themselves. Uh, we, we are, IRC is heading towards that direction for, for July 1st. Um, now there's also another mention about collaboration with the government and control by, by ministries. Uh, early on in Iraq, that was uh, very uh, difficult uh, due to the lack of, of, of a government, and, and the government that was existent was in large part a military government that NGOs often have a problem working with. Uh, and uh, and uh, that didn't help in, in every sense. The, the military was very flexible in trying to make every effort to uh, bend to our needs. Uh, we, were, we were many times offered, should we come in civilian uniform? Should we bear arms? Will we not bear? And, and that, that was admirable in, in the efforts that were made. But a lot has changed in the last uh, few months, and there, there is active collaboration by NGOs with ministries. There is oversight, uh, approval systems for projects by ministries. There is a, 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 um, a coordination body of NGOs in Iraq. And overall, uh, I would say that, that uh, the position of NGOs within the system uh, is, is very, uh, very strong in Iraq now. This is where I am harsher than you are. I'm glad. Um, the, the, um, again, we distinguish between foreign NGOs working in Iraq and nascent, fragile Iraqi NGOs. Um, the, um, in, let me try and think, in November, I believe, the CPA drafted an NGO law. And I'm sorry I don't have the document with me, but I will uh, make it available and perhaps it can go on your website as part of the papers of the colloquium. Um, the, the law, varies from uh, being uh, paranoid to being uh, draconian. And I say this as a representative of the Iraqi government. Uh, of course, the CPA drafted it, but I have a feeling that Iraqi ministers uh, acquiesced in its drafting. The, it, it really puts what I regard as totally unacceptable um, restrictions on NGOs, and I have a feeling that there really wasn't an acceptance of the idea of an independent organization uh, that wants to 
proceed along its own path, has its own mission, has its own project, and which at times crucially has the role of opposing government. And this, I think, is a very important uh, um, part of, a, of an NGO's role. In other words, it is critical of government and it advocates for things that the government is not willing to do um, easily. It, it, it requires pressure. They have to be a pressure tool. And I think this law simply doesn't recognize that. For example, one of the uh, articles of the law says that all NGOs have to submit their proposed projects to the Ministry of Planning and the Ministry of Planning has to approve those projects. And my response is, hell no. Um, we should not have to do that. If there should be laws um, about conduct of projects, in other words, we have to not harm anyone, we have to not advocate for violence and so on and so forth. And if there are laws that affect all sorts of associations that we are contravening, then they should stop us and call us to account, but we should not get prior approval of what we want to do. The other difficulty, and this is what I call bureaucratic and programmatic control, there is another danger looming out there for local and certainly for foreign NGOs, and that is the ideological uh, control. Um, this is something that may come about depending on the politics of the country but I don't want to prejudge that. Hmm. Um, sorry to enforce here something, but I would like to offer still uh, the floor to uh, a couple of more questions and then uh, offer the panelists uh, a final round that also Dean Slaughter then has. Yes, please, sir. Go ahead. Please, question, please. Yeah, uh, my organization, which is CARE, works in both Afghanistan and Iraq, and I think we're having a very If I could sum up what we've seen in, in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, Andrew made a comment that just this week, yeah, the Minister of Planning in Afghanistan uh, equated uh, NGOs with, with warlords. And we've actually, along with other NGOs in Iraq, have been engaged in a whole dialogue with the government on an appropriate legal and regulatory framework for non-governmental organizations and civil society in Afghanistan. We recognize the role of on the other hand, what we've seen in both Afghanistan and Iraq is that uh, to some extent the nascent governments, but also their influential external actors, which are governmental, tend to see really uh, a world in which the only relevant actors are governments and the private sector, and they actually uh, really um, try to marginalize the role of a vibrant independence of the society. Now, in the case of Afghanistan, through a process of dialogue, we've actually arrived at a, a draft NGO legislation, which is much better than the earlier draft, which basically we're about controlling NGOs because we can't trust them. And I think that's what happened with the CPA legislation. And to the credit of NGOs, uh, they largely resisted right. uh, actually registering under that and, and signing up. And in fact, the CPA has had to pull back from their deadline for NGO registration. So, but I think this is a very interesting area for discussion, and uh, both Afghanistan and Iraq show some similarities. Okay, should we show for other words? Yes, please.
Yeah, please. Yeah, Fair. it's not related to the previous question. Mr. Dragovic mentioned, mentioned the there is a coordination between the NGO in Iraq, and Mrs. Frank, Master Frank, say also that they should not ask for authorization to a ministry, but be allowed to work with research and uh, I wonder if we can see the NGO evolving as a network of uh, assistance independent of the government, over the government, as the impact of the European Union. Let's go with Dean Slaughter's book. Um, I see a last question. You want to ask questions? Yeah. Loud. Um, if in uh, 1954, um, the yeah. Ford Foundation um, paid for people to go from the what has subsequently become the Kennedy School to economic planning commission in Pakistan to help capacity building for economic development in the economic planning. They were supposed to go for 18 months. The last advisors left in 1971. And in between, when Ford stopped paying, when the US government started to pay, when the US government stopped paying, the United Nations started to pay, when the United Nations stopped paying, the World Bank started. And it ended basically with the civil war that led to the creation of Bangladesh, which many people blamed on the economic policies that have been put in place for years. And so my question is about at what stage and how is the process to be determined that NGOs have done what they can and it's time to continue, given that there are always donors Yes, please, madam. Last question. People have been talking about a lack of capacity, and then he was particularly talking about the lack of capacity. But uh, in terms of capacity building, in many cases in the past, it seems to have been uh, top heavy, as he described. People were sent to the uh, um, schools and things like that. But from the development experience, one of the most uh, the effective ways to learning by doing. And um, uh, if I say, actually, Koreans learned the economic planning from Pakistan, five-year economic plan in 1964. So they visited Pakistan, and then they implemented it. And then uh, 1986, Pakistani delegation went to Korea, and then they're wondering how they learned this economic plan, and a Korean official said, well, we visited Pakistan in 1964. There was a wonderful, so we just copied it and a little bit uh, fiddled with it for, uh, to accommodate our own situation, and we just implemented it. Hmm. So I'm wondering why uh, people talk a lot about the lack of capacity. And the uh, uh, main issue is the uh, funding, because funding comes from the foreign sources, then is there any effort between, is, is there any effort to promote collaboration between the uh, international NGOs and the local NGOs and uh, some other IFIs or the funders sort of try to promote that kind of thing? And I'd like to see the importance of the, um, this uh, knowledge generation uh, promoted by the uh, Think tank, independent think tanks and the uh, um, research institutes 
So they can generate certain information on the, uh, um, the impl uh, implementation of the NGOs, so they disseminate the information through that, then accountability can be promoted. So I'm wondering whether there's some efforts for that kind of uh, initiative. Okay, now, two minutes each can be three minutes. Just, just quickly to touch on, on these points, but then I'd like to finish on, on the funding question. Yeah. Uh, NGOs developing ab above uh, the role of the government, um, I, I'm not sure exactly what you meant, uh, Ambassador Frank, but uh, with regards to it, you not wanting the Ministry of Planning to approve projects, I, I agree with that, but on the community level, the, the, whatever the community uh, body is responsible for that project, it should be consulted. So certainly at a Baghdad level, we should not be receiving approval for the development of a well but we should be uh, at the community level. Uh, just also, uh, sir, up, up there you talked about how, how long would NGOs uh, stay. I think it's imperative upon NGOs to have the discipline from day one to design an exit strategy, to say what their strategic plan is, why are they, why are they in that country, what are their goals, what is their niche, and when will they leave. Every NGO needs to be, do that, but regrettably too many NGOs are chasing the dollars. Uh, and we'll, we'll do whatever needs to be done to expand their budgets. But lastly then, in, in this two minutes, this funding is a very big issue, but I don't think it can be solved uh, in the near future. Uh, whether the money is coming directly from the US government or whether it's been laundered through the United Nations or through another um, uh, foundation, at the end of the day it is, being, uh, it is coming from a small group of uh, large donor nations. That, to me, is irrelevant. What is relevant is whether you have uh, the, an independence, operational independence on the ground. It doesn't matter who the money is coming from unless it, it, it is directly from the belligerent uh, military. But other than that, it, it, as long as you're allowed operational independence, whether it comes from the United Nations, which uh, is, is in, in, in part uh, mainly uh, dominated by a small uh, number of nations, uh, it, it uh, doesn't affect us on the ground. Four very quick points. Uh, firstly, I think uh, uh, Michael Barry's intervention was very uh, uh, apposite since he highlighted by his presentation about the motivations for NGO involvement in Afghanistan in the 1980s, uh, the, the genuine complexity surrounding the idea of the humanitarian principle. Uh, and in a way, I'd like to problematise that a little bit further and ask, where do humanitarian principles actually come from and what is their ethical status? That, uh, it's one thing for an organisation such as the International Committee of the Red Cross to put forward neutrality and impartiality as an operational code for itself and for agencies uh, to copy that. But it's another thing to expect that the wider political realm will automatically accept that having agencies depicting themselves as neutral and impartial is an appropriate way of having uh, uh, or dealing with forces that may actually be strengthened by drawing on the resources and the, uh, the apparent support of neutral and impartial agencies. And this was at the heart of the conundrum of how to deal with the Taliban in Afghanistan. But, when the, the United Nations signed a memorandum of understanding with the Taliban uh, that said women's access to health and education will need to be gradual, uh, 
people in the humanitarian side of the UN, this looked like a way of uh, delivering at least some assistance to needy people. But from the point of view of human rights agencies, this was making a symbolic concession that no agency with the reputation of the UN should ever have been prepared to make. So I think it's, it's extremely difficult to carve out uh, a space of neutral humanitarianism in a world which is uh, irredeemably political. And it's a matter of negotiating one's way through difficult circumstances rather than thinking that one can impose a neutral realm of that on the wider world. This brings me to Dean Slaughter's uh, question, which I think is a very good one. And I think the problem here is that just as the um, realm of uh, NGOs is a complex and mixed one, so are governments. Governments, in many ways, are dysfunctional families. And in, in the, the best of worlds, what NGOs would like to do is draw on certain types of governmental assistance, get money from USAID or its equivalent, and, and get moral support for the cases that they wish to highlight through the Security Council and the General Assembly of the United Nations, but without other elements of the state also becoming involved. And yet that's not the reality of politics. And when major states become involved in a big way uh, in complex situations, it's all systems go. And uh, it's not necessarily the case that NGOs will ever be able to control the environment in which, uh, which develops once major powers have decided that they're going to go in with a bang to try and clean up a messy situation. Uh, one final point. Uh, the issue of why it is that embryonic state instrumentalities so often come out with incredibly tough and detailed and restri restrictive laws on NGO activity. I suspect that it's not just that they are concerned with what NGOs may be doing, but also with the reality that in circumstances where their own capacities are very weak, they are looking for ways to symbolise the reconstitution of the state by imposing regulations on actors that may have little choice but to go along with them. Uh, this, I think, was why the, the Afghan government in the mid-1990s used to have ridiculous requirements that uh, foreign workers get exit visas to leave the country, even though terrorists could come and go across the border with Pakistan with absolutely no difficulty. It was important because it symbolised that where the state couldn't do functional things, it could at least assert some symbolic control. And NGOs are very ready targets for this kind of regulation because they are generally law-abiding. Right. Um, I'm going to answer two questions that were posed. Um, the reason I focus in my talk on challenges to developmental NGOs is precisely because the short-term nature of donor objectives has led and is leading to a drowning out of existing Afghan capacity and a lack of investment in new capacity. We, we need to begin the shift of donor input away from project formulation and implementation. As existing capacity for integrated approaches is lost and project planning is in the hands of a few often expat Kabul-based engineers, the real danger is that we are now entering the period of white elephants. Um, I would agree that cooperation is vital to ensure that this historical opportunity for Afghanistan is not squandered. But the gap between the rhetoric and the actuality in Afghanistan is of, deep, of deepening concern. The underpinnings that will ensure sustainability arguably have not been put in, put in place. And if the international community left Afghanistan tomorrow, one must ask the question, what would remain? 
the international community may have focused on, on Afghanistan, but in what ways? Um, the agenda has, has been led by the um, interest of the war on terror. The US, for example, is notably wary of anything that smacks of state building, and consequently, full-on engagement in these processes has come very late in the day, and a lot of time has been lost. The most notable missed opportunity um, on the part of the international community was the failure to expand ISAF in the first six months. Um, this was envisaged in the Bonn Agreement, uh, and security has deteriorated in the meantime. Consequently, crisis management has been the order of the day. <coughs> Short-termism rules and exit strategies, understandably, are being actively sought. NGOs would be a lot more positive if that was not so obviously the case. Thank you. Um, just a few comments, <clears throat> one starting on the question regarding trust. I mean, I think that that is a critical issue. <clears throat> and I think it's unfortunately an area where trust is uh, diminishing now t towards the international community, including NGOs. Um, and I think part of that has to do with the communication strategies of the aid business in general. Um, after 9-11, suddenly, we got in the headlines. It's um, what we had all wanted before, and then it hit us. Some of us maybe regretted it then. But immediately, our headquarters sent out the media training team, and you know, we're all unsavvy aid workers, how to look better on, in front of the TV cameras. Um, but the general communication strategies of most aid agencies, including donor agencies, including UN agencies, including NGOs, was PR focused. Um, all the wonderful things they're doing. For donors, the, all the millions and billions they're donating. For UN agencies, all the wonderful projects they're funding. And that's what we communicated. Um, and what Afghans heard on the Dari and Pashtu radio services was all the aid coming their way, all the projects being uh, implemented for them. And most of them didn't see it. Um, I personally think a tremendous amount, if you compare what's being done now in Afghanistan to what was being done three years ago, a remarkable amount has been achieved. But the expectations are so much higher than what we've delivered on that people are disappointed. A fundamental part of the strategy um, to legitimize the Karzai government was a bricks and mortar strategy. Um, we're going to build roads, we're going to build schools, we're going to meet clinics, and we're going to try to get it done before the election. And that's going to really help Karzai get elected. I personally think it's a real flawed strategy. I think. Um, Again, we're not going to meet the expectations. People are disappointed. I think we're losing the trust of Afghans through our communication strategies. And I think there's a real need collectively for the assistance community to learn from this experience. And in situations like this in the future, our fundamental task should be lowering expectations, not raising expectations. Look, Afghanistan is one of the poorest countries in the world to begin with. You've gone through 20 years of conflict. It's going to take time. Be patient. Be bear with us. We're actually doing our best, but you know it's going to take time. And I think that's the messages we should have been communicating. Um, and I'm hoping, although lessons are never learned in this business, but that possibly in the future this could contribute. And I think this would help address the trust issue. Very briefly on capacity building, I think it's a critical issue. It's also an issue to which there is no quick fix solution. To me, really addressing capacity issues really involves addressing the issues of quality of education in Afghanistan at primary, at secondary, at tertiary levels. Um, we have a very limited, finite group of educated, qualified Afghans who are familiar with uh, the reconstruction process, most of them who emerged through the NGO sector over the last 20 years. 
some of the only sort of human resource training occurred in the NGO sector. And now many of the ministers, the deputy ministers in the new government, as well as many of the senior national staff in various agencies um, have, are those who had emerged from the NGO sector. But we, we're, we've pretty much run out of those. Um, and as we launch new programs, what's basically happening is the salary scales are being ratcheted up for these same limited individuals. But it's going to take five years, ten years to get Kabul University up and running, a civil service academy, training new civil servants, a primary education, secondary education. And one of the real tragedies in Afghanistan in the last two years is the education sector, as often happens in these situations, is not getting the attention it deserves. It's not as visible as building buildings and building roads, and yet it's so much more important. So that would be, again, one of my real, if we want to, uh, please, is that if we want to get serious about capacity building, let's prioritize quality uh, uh, education and relevant education. And finally, I just wanted to say that we were talking a bit about this yesterday, is I think one of the real crises in Afghanistan is the lack of a political strategy. We're very good on the military side, and we're very bad on the political side. Um, and I think ultimately this to me would be the solution towards a, a better collaborative arrangement is there's no way in these messy situations like Afghanistan and Iraq to be able to come up with a formulaic two and a half year strategy towards peace and development and prosperity in a country like Afghanistan. That to me was the tragedy of the Bonn Agreement, a tremendous missed opportunity. The Bonn Agreement to me was an agreement basically to legitimize, the to distribute the spoils of war to those main allies who helped defeat the Taliban. It was not a strategy to rebuild the state. Um, and in, in the last two and a half years, we've not really had a strategy. We've had a narrowly defined war on terror to uh, pursue the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. But I really feel in Afghanistan, until we broaden our definition of a war on terror to include those who are terrorizing Afghans and not just those who are terrorizing the West, we're going to fail. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Now let me offer the floor to Dean Anne-Marie Slaughter, who uh, has uh, not only had the vision, energy, and uh, interest to create uh, this uh, um, um, series of colloquia on public and international affairs, but who in um, her tenure at uh, Princeton as Dean of the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs has also offered uh, programs, projects, and institutes like my own, the capability uh, to uh, do what we are supposed to do, namely train, educate, and interact between academia and public policy. I'm delighted to offer you the floor. Thank you. You're going to hear from me uh, a number of times over the next couple of days, so I will keep it brief now and welcome you. Uh, as Wolfgang says, this is the second uh, Princeton a colloquium on public and international affairs. There was once something called the Harvard Colloquium on public and international <laughs> affairs. Uh, there were three, and then it's mysteriously migrated. Uh, but we are very happy to host it here. And I want to just say a few things about it. Uh, it is a profoundly <coughs> collaborative effort. It, it, this year has been a collaboration in the first instance uh, among the students of the Woodrow Wilson School, graduate and undergraduate, and some beyond the school the staff of the school and the faculty, uh, not only in the school, but also across the university. It's a university-wide effort. As you will see, the different panels are being sponsored by different departments, councils, programs, all the different entities uh, that we have, not only here, but across the university. 
That is very important for the Woodrow Wilson School because we seek to be the place uh, for everyone uh, in the Princeton community uh, to uh, develop and uh, use their interest in, pu in public and international affairs. I also wel welcome the alumni who come back, uh, the MPA alumni. We're hosting a, our alumni weekend this weekend, and any of you who are from the Princeton Township. Uh, this is also something that brings many different audiences together, as well as uh, many different uh, providers. And you've already seen, we've started with the Lichtenstein Institute's panel. Uh, this is a great example of something within the school that has uh, expanded our reach tremendously. I also want to simply uh, invite you to come back uh, at 1 o'clock. Uh, the publicity for the colloquium lists General David Petraeus as our keynote speaker, our first keynote speaker. Uh, General Petraeus, as many of you know, has been recalled to Iraq uh, to be engaged in uh, much of the work that uh, we've been, been discussing this morning. Uh, in his stead, uh, we have a very exciting uh, keynote uh, entitled The U.S. and Iraq, The Road Ahead, and our first speaker will be Ambassador Frankie, from whom you've heard this morning, but she will uh, address you on some of the issues uh, facing Iraq and the United States. She'll be followed by Brigadier General Jeffrey Schlosser, who is the Assistant Division Compa uh, Commander for the 101st uh, Airborne, uh, and then I will moderate a discussion uh, with the audience uh, following the two presentations. So that is uh, here again at 1 o'clock. I invite you back. We've been off to a wonderful start on what is a complex subject, and I will say personally, after listening for the last hour and a half, I'm already uh, realizing how much more complex it is uh, than we often are able to understand, uh, and it will be, I think, a very important two days. So welcome, go have lunch, and come back at 1 o'clock. Thank you.